Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, and that's on page 1002 in the Black Pew Bible. We are uh, picking up again last week on fall break where we had a guest preacher preparing the congregation to think about elders and deacons and how Christ ministers to his body in that way. So if you happen to be here two weeks ago, we're really just picking right back up where we left off in our study of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2 in the middle of a section asking the question, why did God become man? Here at Redeemer, we believe the point of a sermon should aim, and we miss the mark, but should aim to be the point of the passage of Scripture we've been reading. And at this point in the book of Hebrews, the writer has moved from exhortation in chapter 2, 1 to 4 to explanation. Chapter 2, 1 to 4 was exhortation. It was a command. He said, don't drift away from Jesus. Don't subtly, slowly, incidentally, accidentally, by not paying attention to him, disappear from him but rather he goes on to say pay more attention to the gospel pay closer attention to Jesus that's his exhortation now he's coming back again to explanation explanation about Jesus being God who became man Jesus adding to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity why has he returned to that theme Beginning actually at verse 5. Well, if Jesus is the eternal creator and sustainer of all things, as chapter 1 declares that he is infinite and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth, if he is God, very God of very God, the eternal and everlasting Son of God, then what is he doing in the weakness of human flesh? suffering the miseries of this life. Well, it wasn't just so that people could see God face to face, even God veiled in flesh. The fact is not one of us has seen Jesus ourselves face to face. The very tiniest percentage of the population that has ever lived has seen Jesus face to face in this world. Though the saints in glory enjoy that experience. No, it wasn't that. And it wasn't just so that we would have a good example of what quality service and love looks like, though there is no better example. And it wasn't just so that we could anticipate a warm, fuzzy Christmas by a fireplace, feasting, exchanging gifts, singing Christmas carols, exchanging well wishes, though celebrations and feasts of good news are not a bad thing it was why did he become it was a rescue mission it was a rescue mission and in chapter two five to nine we looked at two weeks it was to rescue humanity and now in verses 10 to 13 we see it was to restore humanity into god's family for all who believe in him And so let me invite you to pay attention to God's word as we consider these things tonight. Tonight, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. This is the word of God. For it was fitting 
that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all of one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Let's look to him together in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lift the glory of Christ before us. Help us to know him as he truly is. Help us to stand back and see in him the salvation of the Lord. And so grant that we would be blessed and he would be honored. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Roman mythology, uh, the founding of Rome has a legendary story. You wouldn't be surprised to hear that, I suppose. Romulus and his twin brother Remus, uh, born of a woman and her union with a god, the god Mars. Well, these brothers sought to build a new city in Italy, but they fought over where to build it. Uh, One, Romulus, well, he wanted to start the city on the hill Palatine, but his brother Remus wanted to start it on the hill Aventine. In order to settle their disagreements, they agreed to consult what's called augury. I don't know what that was. had to look it up. Augury is in these kinds of uh, ancient pagan religions, a type of prophecy in which birds are examined and observed to determine what actions or persons the gods favor. So what happened is each brother prepared a sacred place on their respective hills, and they began watching the birds. Remus claimed to have seen six birds, while Romulus claimed to have seen 12 birds. Romulus asserted that it was He who was the clear winner by six birds. But Remus argued, since he saw his six birds first, that he had won. Typical brother. The brothers remained at a standstill over this, continuing to quarrel until Romulus simply began to dig trenches and build walls around his hill, the Palatine Hill. Remus belittled the little wall. And in a final insult to the new city and its founder alike, he leaped over the wall. And in response, Romulus killed him, saying, So perish everyone that shall hereafter leap over my wall. (laughs) And so the new city was named for Romulus. You know it as Rome. And so it is in the legendary pagan mythology Romulus established his people at the expense of the death of his brother. And that is just the opposite of the Lord Jesus, who establishes his people at his own 
expense by giving his life for his brothers. He establishes his people not by slaying them, but by being slain for them. And in the words of verse 9 in Hebrews 2, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And in the language of verse 10, who has he done this for? Many sons who are being brought to glory. Verse 12 describes these sons as brothers, of whom he is not ashamed to be called their brother. And verse 13 describes them as God's children. Children, brothers, sons. This is familial language. So you've turned a corner from verses 5 to 9 when when it was important for him to become a human to rescue humanity. Now he has come to rescue his family. Why do we need him? Three things let me highlight. Verse 10, we need him to lead us out of misery and into glory. Second reason, verses 11 and 12, we need him to set us apart as brothers. And verse 13, we need him to become a man to secure us for God as a gift. These three things. Let me have you think about these with me tonight. Verse 10 Why did God become man? To lead us out of misery and into glory. Notice the way he puts it. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You're hearing a bit of the good news here. The good news that God and Jesus is bringing many sons and the language encompasses male and female, sons and daughters, of course, into glory. And we aren't bringing ourselves there. He is bringing us. Who is it that's bringing us? He uh, for whom and by whom all things exist. God himself is doing it, taking us into glory. And how is he doing it? By sending his own beloved, unique son, Jesus, into misery and suffering. That's the language here. God, it says, thinks that's fitting. He sees that as appropriate. It's the right way to remedy the wrong done by mankind. As Paul will put elsewhere, as by a man came death, so also by a man comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All who belong to him, all who believe in him. It's fitting, it's appropriate. What the first Adam ruined, this last Adam restores. What was lost in the fall is recovered in Christ's redemption. It's appropriate. Now in verses 5 to 9, we've already seen this. God made us for dignity, we saw, and dominion. He made us after the image of God to represent him on the earth and to rule over the earth. And what do we experience? Our dignity is marred, it's bruised, it's broken. Dominion is diminished. It's hard even to see it. Not everything is under our feet the way that it ought to be. The world doesn't work the way that it ought. We're bruised and broken by the fall. Our depravity makes it hard to see. How we have dignity as the image bearers of God. Disorder and death make it hard to see how we have dominion over all of creation. We suffer its ravages. 
And so to rescue us and to restore us, God sent his son into the world to be the true human and in his humanity as the true God-man. Share our misery, die our death, receive our punishment, and so pass from death into life and into glory on our behalf. And the writer here now at verse 10 says, and he is the pioneer for you in that salvation. That's the language here. Now the ESV reads founder. To make the founder, it says, uh, uh, of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is a word that's a dip, difficult to capture all its nuance. It's a, it's a word, um, archegos, that... Um, Uh, The ESV we were reading says founder. The King James says captain. We just sang the hymn for all the saints. We we sang of the captain. And that's where they got that language. Uh, The New American Standard uh, translates it the author of our salvation. The NIV says the pioneer of our salvation. And so you can see there's a kind of richness to the word. And pioneer is not a bad translation. The word means somebody who does something that somebody else enters into. So, for example, it's used of a man who founds a family and then others are born into it or brought into it. It's used of a man who founds a city and others come to dwell and live in that city. And it was used commonly of a, of a pioneer who uh, trailblazed so that others could follow in his path. The archegos never stood at the rear giving orders. You go, you do, you blaze the path. No, no, no. He was always out front blazing the path first. He's not standing in the back telling us all what to do that we're incapable of doing. But he's also not out ahead of us looking back yelling, y'all catch up. Where are you? No, no, he's blazed a trail and he's come back and he's taken us by the hand and he's walked us upon the path that he has trod, but a path that he has cleared of debris, a path in which he has wiped out the enemies, that he has made peace with those for whom peace needs to be made, a path which is safe for you and I to travel, following after this Pioneer, So he's ahead of us here as the great pioneer. And the author goes on to say, and he is absolutely perfect for that job. He, it says, is the perfect savior for you because God made this pioneer of your salvation. Notice the end of verse 10. Perfect through suffering. He is perfected in suffering. Now immediately, perhaps, you begin to ask the question, what does that mean, that Jesus went from being imperfect to being perfect? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a state of moral imperfection to moral perfection or a state of disobedience to a state of obedience. That's not the kind of perfection he's describing here. It's the movement from perfection in being as God in the flesh through perfection in experience under trial, suffering as he obeys, that he might be fit, fully complete, fully mature in his sufferings and obedience, even death upon a cross, to bring to completion our salvation. 
And because he bore that cross before he bore the crown, he's the perfect pioneer to bring others out of misery and death and into life and glory. I don't know if you've seen making the rounds on the internet. I caught it on Facebook. This man who went elk hunting out in Wyoming or Montana. And he went out knowing that it was also bear season and he was doing what any responsible hunter who cares about his own life would do. Evidently, I know nothing about this, evidently every 30 feet or 30 seconds or so, you say, hey bear, you're just trying to startle any bears that might be anywhere nearby because you're hoping they'll be startled enough to avoid you, to walk away. You don't want to suddenly come up on a bear. And um, so he was doing that. The trail opened upon a clearing, and across the clearing, suddenly uh, a mother bear popped up, and she had a couple of cubs with her, and she took one look at him, and she charged. And she came flying across that clearing. He, at some point, pulled out his bear spray and shot it at her, but that didn't didn't do anything. She plowed right through that. She mauled him terribly, left him. He was cut. He was punctured. He was bruised. He was exhausted, but he began the three-mile trek back to his car, running and walking down the path. Until some 20 minutes or more later, he heard a noise behind him. She had either decided to track him down again or had simply cut across his path again, but there she was, and she mauled him again, really tearing into him this time. He barely survived. The last 30 seconds, she just stood on his back, breathing right over his neck. He thought he was going to suffocate, and then she finally let him go. When he finally got to a hospital, nurses took eight hours to stitch up the puncture and scratch wounds on his body. Maybe you feel like life has treated you that way. Disorder in the world has battered and bruised you. And maybe you have thought, if I just give suffering a wide enough berth, I can avoid it. Or if I can just anticipate its eventuality, I can mitigate its difficulties. I'll back away from it, it'll back away from me. Or maybe you have thought, I've got, a, you know, I, I, I've got defenses, I'll put up repellent. But it has blasted through your defenses and it has mauled you. And just when you thought you were free of suffering, it hunted you down And it mauled you again. And maybe for you it's going to take heaven itself to heal all your wounds. A moment in heaven will be enough to do so. But maybe you're just exhausted and tired, worn out by suffering and death. And Jesus, this passage says, gets exactly where you are. He has been there and ahead of you in that experience. And because, this is the encouraging word, because he made it through suffering and into glory, through death and out of the grave and into life, you who believe in him are guaranteed that victory too. He's the trailblazer. 
on your behalf. God thinks it's fitting that it should be done that way for you. Don't you think so? Now, the second thing we see here is not only that he leads us out of misery and into glory, but in verses 11 and 12, we see that he sets us apart as brothers in the family of God. And the language here at verse 11 speaks of sanctification. Notice it. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified uh, all have one source. We'll get to that language in just a moment. When he talks about sanctification, if you're not familiar with that ter- term, it's a term related to, to holiness, uh, to being set apart as holy, or it can refer to being made, the process of being made holy. Here it's not so much the process, the ongoing activity of more and more becoming more like Jesus, but really here it's the definitive, you have been set apart. The one who sanctifies you is Jesus, and you are the ones here who are sanctified. He sets you apart, and you in him are set apart by God and for God, and that happens in your union with him. You are one with him through faith. That little phrase tacked on at the end, it's important, but it's controversial. It's just difficult to be sure what it's getting at. Um, He says, uh, he who sanctifies those who are sanctified all have, the ESV says, one source. Some translation says we are all of one family. Others say we all have one father. Uh, A lot of them are inserting an extra word to make sense of it. Uh, because we are all of one, it says, and it just stops there. One what? It begs the question. And I think the best understanding is that he means we are all of one nature. He's been describing God becoming human in a true body with a reasonable soul, a man in every sense of the term, yet without sin, but really genuinely human. And he shared a nature like ours that he might take us into himself, unite himself with us, set us apart in body and soul, as he set himself apart in body and soul, to give us complete holiness encompassed in his holiness. And because he did that for us, because he is acceptable to God, we are acceptable to God. We are set apart in him. And what did he set us apart to or for? To be the family of God, members of the family, to bear the likeness of the Father, to bear the resemblance of our elder brother. And so the, he goes on to, to even look at Psalm 22. He is not ashamed, it says, to call them Brothers, he's not ashamed for everybody to know that you're his family. Now you, as you think about you, probably can think of all kinds of reasons why he ought to be ashamed of you. You're ashamed of you. You can think of reasons why he ought to be embarrassed about you. You can think of reasons why he shouldn't come to the family reunions because look at the kinds of family members who belong to this family. But he doesn't think there's any good reason to be ashamed of you. 
He delights to call you brother and sister. He delights to be known as your elder brother because he bore your shame in his humiliation on the cross and he took it away. Whatever contempt the proud have who think they have no need of him and who are shocked at the people who identify with him. Whatever contempt the proud have You need never bear contempt for the sin that makes you need him. He was delighted to bear your shame away. And he doesn't hold it against you that he did it. He isn't resentful that he did this for you. And to prove that, the writer does turn to Psalm 22. He turns there at verse 12 in Hebrews to Psalm 22. And of course, the reason he does that, he's trying again, because this is the letter to the Hebrews. These are by and large Jews who know their Old Testament. He's trying to show them that what he's saying about Jesus, they already have in the word of God. Even if they didn't have eyes to see it, it was already there. So he turns to the very famous Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, Probably you've heard portions of it. It's divided in two parts. It's about humiliation and exaltation. The first half of it is about the crucifixion. It's the language that Jesus took upon his lips. Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Upon the cross, Jesus uh, prays. Because he knows he's being abandoned to the cross and to death and to judgment. And the smiling face of God has departed from him. And that psalm goes on in the first half to describe and depict the agonizing physical and emotional experience of the cross. People mocking him spitting on him, stripping him of his his clothes, gambling for his garments, nailing him to a tree, his experience of being thirsty and the agony of judgment. Look at Psalm 22 sometime. That's the whole first half. But our quote is from the second half. It's actually the pivot point of the psalm where the psalm changes. The psalm doesn't end in agony, nor does the story of Jesus, as you know. It ends in triumph. Verse 22 of Psalm 22. I will tell of your, of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Here is one who has been crucified who lives. One who has victory over death. And he appears in the midst of God's people. In the assembly, the church of the people of God. And what's he doing? He's singing. He's singing in their midst. In the corporate gathering of God's people, you know who is here? Jesus. And he is singing over your shoulder. Don't look back. I know that voice wasn't as angelic as you thought it would be. You can't see him. But he stands in the midst of God's people declaring the praises of the one who raised him from the dead. He stands there as our elder brother, rubbing shoulders with us and happy to do so. He knows who he's with. He knows exactly who's in this crowd. He knows that in yourself you're absolutely unworthy to be called family. He knows that you think you ought to be turned out of God's family, but he sanctifies you 
He makes you acceptable. He's glad for you to belong to Him. He isn't ashamed of you. Are you ashamed of Him? Why? Why be ashamed of Him? If He's willing to own others as His family, are you ashamed of them? Are you ashamed of brothers and sisters in the family of God that Jesus is not ashamed of? Why? Accept one another as you in Christ have been accepted is the way the gospel is to be lived out. Well, that's the second thing we see. The third and final thing is at verse 13. Why did he become man? To secure us for God as a gift. Notice the language at verse 13. And and here, he's just quoting again. He's actually turned away from the Psalms now to the prophets. He's turned to Isaiah. He's actually turned to the prophet Isaiah chapter 8. And he quotes him. Verse 13. And again, quote, I will put my trust in him. And again, quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now I have to say... Maybe you're scratching your head a little bit as if you've looked at Isaiah, if you've ever looked at this passage before, and you're wondering, how did the writer get that from Isaiah chapter 8? How is this words about the Messiah or the words of the Messiah? Well, at the risk of making more complicated something I hope to make less complicated and to bring us some understanding, let me invite you to consider Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and nine. The context. It will actually really help you here. Isaiah is the prophet who depicted doom and gloom for the people of God. Because of their unfaithfulness and unbelief, the nation of Assyria is going to destroy them and actually decimate the northern kingdom. It's just going to be gone. They're going to be wiped away. But in the midst of the message of doom and gloom, there's a message of hope. Hope for believers. That hope is stoked through the story of three children. Three children you find out about in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, and 9. Two of those children are Isaiah's own children. In Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord told him to name one of his kids Shir Jashub, meaning a remnant will return. So that every time Isaiah thought about his son, spoke about his son, or the people looked at his son knowing his name, they were reminded constantly, God says, a remnant will return. I'm sure it made them puzzle for a time, but there's going to be a group. And it's going to come back. And so that there's a kind of hope here that God will hold on to his people through suffering and exile... And he will restore them. Now the second child's name is found in Isaiah chapter 8. And his name is Mahershalal Hashbaz. Or however you want to pronounce it. It translates something like the spoil speeds the prey hastens. I think it's J.B. Phillips who put it perhaps more helpfully. It translates something like quick pickings, easy prey. And so he's got one kid, a remnant will return. Boy, that just sounds like hope, even if it sounds like something ominous is going to happen. And then this other kid, quick pickings, easy prey. 
Well, that's the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria is just going to decimate them, and it's not going to be troublesome for Assyria to do it. They are vulnerable. They are in danger because they are unbelieving. And then there's a third child in Isaiah, child in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And if you skip over to chapter 9, we learn about that son, and we read it here every Christmas, that this son, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. This is a child of hope. This is the promised Messiah. This, of course, is Jesus, born of the Virgin. What's then the connection to the book of Hebrews? Why is he quoting from chapter 8 between those two chapters? Well, he's doing so because Isaiah in chapter 8 is commanded not to be like the unbelievers in Israel, not to despair, not to walk away from the Lord, but to trust the Lord. And the language is put like this. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And then he goes on to speak. In verse 14, of a rock. And that rock is Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary. Did you remember our reading from John chapter 2? Jesus said, destroy this temple and I I will rebuild it in three days. And and they didn't know what he was talking about. And he said later, he's talking about his body. He's the temple of God. Well, in Isaiah, it's he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So in other words, you are either built on him, he's a sanctuary upon which you are built and included, or you trip over him and you fall flat on your face. Either you're built on the Messiah and become part of the sanctuary, or you stumble over the Messiah. And then Isaiah goes on, and in the words of verses 17 and 18 of Isaiah chapter 8, you have the two quotations from Hebrews chapter 2. 17 in Isaiah 8, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. That translates into Greek in Hebrews as I will trust, a snippet of that, I will trust in him. To wait on the Lord is to trust in him in anticipation of the future. I will trust in the Lord. And then again at verse 18, behold, I am the children whom the Lord has given me. In other words, I, it's, if this is Isaiah talking, it's Isaiah saying, I and my sons will belong to the Lord, though everybody else around us abandons the Lord. We'll go on in faith, me and my children. Now, you may be asking then, how do you get from that, if it's Isaiah to Jesus, how do you go from Isaiah to the Messiah? You do it in one of two ways. One is to understand Isaiah 
having spoken of the Messiah as Emmanuel, as the stone, the sanctuary, or the one people trip over, want us to understand the next words is actually prophetic words, the words of the Messiah. The other way is to see it rather as a foreshadowing, a prophetic foreshadowing, or a prophetic prefiguring of the Messiah. In other words, Isaiah's own experience is going to be like the experience of the Messiah. As Isaiah trusted the Lord and brought his children safely to the Lord in a time of unbelief and suffering, so too the Messiah will trust the Lord and bring all God's children with him safely to the Lord and in his arms so that as goes the prophet, so goes the Messiah. And Jesus, we know, did come in a time of great unbelief when the nation of Israel was rejecting the Messiah and the people of God were suffering and were going to suffer terribly by Rome. In fact, the nation was going to be wiped away. But Jesus was not a child of his age. He trusted the Lord when all around him didn't. And I want to pause there and apply that because I think the writer of Hebrews has a pastoral application here. Jesus became a man, a person, a human, just like you, so that he could trust the Lord in ways you're supposed to, but you haven't. And suffering is a place where your trust is tested. Suffering is a place where it's hard to trust the Lord. When you're overwhelmed by your experience and you quit calling out to God for help. Or maybe it's a time when you become so proud that you think, I'll figure out a way to escape from my suffering. I'll do this on my own. But you've quit trusting the Lord. Well, the Messiah didn't live like that. He waited on God. He hoped in God even while he was hanging upon a cross. He did all the way through suffering. And his trust of God is enough for you. His trust of God is enough for you to be accounted a God truster in God's eyes. Because you're one with him. And he was perfect in trust through suffering. And the second point of that passage in the second, or the second quotation, the third quotation, the second part of this is that Jesus is completely successful in his mission in trusting God and gathering not only himself to the Lord, but all his people, all God's children. There's no failure on his part. He came among us. He received God's children as a gift. And he presents those children back to the Lord saying, here they are. Here I am. And all your children, Lord. Not a one of them is lost. Mission accomplished. Christ brings none to the Father except those whom the Father has given to him, and he loses none of them. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. There is your safety if you have come to Jesus. And if you have not, here is your hope. The end of that verse is, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to him. But if you are a Christian, do you know what you are? You are a gift from God to Jesus. And so you are secure. He guards you and he guarantees you. 
in your return to the Father. And so, just as the road for Jesus, the road to glory, was paved with suffering, so your road involves suffering too. But your suffering is not like his suffering. He sucked the poison out of suffering. He took the sting of suffering. He removed the judgment involved in suffering. And so while we do face hardship in this life, we do so as the children of God, not being punished by a judge for our sin, but being loved by a father, even as he disciplines those he loves. This is our great confidence because Jesus suffered for us. And so it is that he came to rescue us. He came to lead us to God and to glory. He sets us apart as brothers. He keeps us safe as God's gifts. He worships God with us. He trusts God for us. And he holds on to us. To what other God will you turn to be treated so well? There is none. But him, let's pray. You are good. You are kind. And we thank you. Grant that we would know that in our heart of hearts. Believe it to be true. And so trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.